The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. The brainchild of Alan McCarthy and Jamie Murphy from the Michael Collins House, History Scoops was born and thanks to Ray Blackwell, housed in the Bars Folk Club, where three lectures took place. One of the lecturers was Professor Linda Connolly from Maynooth, who spoke about sexual and physical violence against women during the revolutionary period. Linda's research and lecture will intrigue you on elements of the revolution that we are only beginning to hear now for the first time. So sit back, listen and take it in. I am delighted uh, to be here this evening and I am going to talk about this uh, question of uh, women during the Irish Revolution, not just the War of Independence but actually into the Civil War as well. And just by way of introduction I suppose we know now I think quite a bit about what we might call the active involvement of women, you know, in coming among, um, in um, the 1916 Rising indeed etc. So we know a lot about I suppose the role of women as combatants um, and we also know quite a bit now about the kind of what we might call the subversive role of women um, particularly in rural areas you know around um, for instance you know carrying messages and um, all those kinds of things and there's quite a lot written now um, on that aspect but I, what I want to talk today is maybe in contrast to Martin which is less about high politics and more about um, what happened to women in the period of revolution? And I want to talk a little bit, I suppose, about, um, again, the two fascinating first papers, but also commemoration, perhaps, also involving the impulse to forget and not just uh, remember. And um, when we're looking at what happened to this, um, what happened to women in this period of the War of Independence and indeed the Civil War, um, were often led to believe that women weren't that badly impacted. You know, they weren't the ones, if you like, killed. They weren't the ones in Kilmichael, um, you know, as you described. Um, and they somehow, I suppose, escaped the worst horrors of the conflict um, in that period. And that any punishment they experienced was perhaps more lenient. Uh, and I'm going to challenge that. I think it's a myth. And I think it's something that has dominated um, Irish historiographical perspectives on the revolution uh, for a very long period. And what that means is I have to look at some difficult issues. And I would say there's no point in having a commemoration if we're not going to also ask the difficult questions about the past, as well as commemorate and mark those very important moments. We're all, you know, I had one grandfather in the First World War, I had another one in the IRA. Um, if I look at my children, their whole biography is interlinked through their parents, um, you know, with this whole historical questions we're looking at. So it's a pluralistic um, approach to looking at the past. There isn't any one narrative, I think. Um, so I'm going to focus in particular on this question of um, gender-based violence. And I'm very interested in this, even from the perspective of today. Um, if you think about, you know, we've had so many prominent cases in Ireland, you think about the, the horrific death of Clodagh Hawes um, recently. All these questions um, 
um, arise in contemporary society. And I think if we can't acknowledge the violence of the past, how can we deal with it um, in the present? So when I talk about gender-based violence in this period, I suppose, just by very brief way of introduction, I could say a lot about it. But I suppose, what did women experience in this period? And we talk about, I suppose, a continuum ranging from what we might call basic harassment. Today we call it sexual harassment. But um, women did um, suffer a great degree of harassment in this period, whether it was through searching um, or simply, I suppose, um, as some of the um, sources we have today show women being sort of annoyed walking down the street, um, etc. But we're also to, I also want to discuss, I suppose, more, again, and I have to be careful with my language, what you might call more serious forms of violence. And one of those, um, which I look at in a, in a moment, is this practice of um, shaving women's hair or forced hair cutting that we know was uh, widespread in this period. So I'm going to talk about that. And then the second thing I'm going to talk about is some of the more serious examples um, of sexual assault um, from this period. And we know that these forms of violence, unfortunately, occur in all conflicts. And I don't think there's any reason to assume that the conflict in Ireland was an exception in that regard. So that's the kind of argument I want to make. I could, if I had time, also talk about things like um, physical assault, uh, things like beatings, and also very, very important, and we haven't even touched this, I think, um, Alan, in terms of what you're talking about, is the psychological impact, the shouting, the threats, um, witnessing killing or violence towards loved ones, uh, intimidation, what we call the traumatic effect, the psychological impact of violence in this period. So, as I said, I'm, I suppose, less going to look at kind of high politics and how I approach these topics is um, I've been looking at the stories, um, looking at these issues through the stories of women from this period, primarily relying on documentary stories, things like um, the witness statements, but also particular files um, that document uh, some uh, incidents as they happen to women. Okay. So here, um, I suppose I'm going to start... Um, have you, I presume you've all seen The Wind That Shakes the Barley, given that it was um, filmed uh, in these parts, probably more extras, etc., in the movie. But again, we've seen in recent years, um, with forced hair cutting, uh, arising in popular sources, and this is a scene from Ken Loach's film. But um, I had forgotten this until I, uh, this came on over Christmas, Ryan's Daughter. There's also a scene, um, again, I don't know if any of you watched that recently, um, where... Rose, this the main character, has a bit of an extramarital affair mm -hmm. um, with the local British um, soldier, but she's dragged through the streets and has her hair um, forcibly uh, cut. So again, we're talking sometimes about shaving, shearing, different kinds of implements used. Um, so, and here we are again, this uh, very uh, powerful scene, I think. Some of this, what I'm talking about, is very disturbing, uh, it has to be said. So Conor Heffernan writes, Troops storm into the house and forcibly evicting those inside. Screams of terror emanate from the house, growing louder and louder with each moment. Soon the house will be set on fire. In the melee that ensues, troops single out a woman known for collaborating with the enemy. Held down at gunpoint, her head is shaved. In the distance, fighters from the other side look on as she wails. And Heffernan is describing this scene from Loach's um, 
2006 uh, film uh, on the Irish War of Independence and Civil War. So while this is fictional, um, it touches upon what I suggest is really a seldomly discussed occurrence during this time, and namely the kinds of acts of degradation and intimidation and, quite frankly, humiliation um, of Irish women in this period. Um, why is hair shearing so significant? Uh, why did it occur? Uh, and why was it um, done, I suppose, is a very important question. Well, again, I'd come back to Irish exceptionalism. Ireland is no different than many other countries where this uh, occurred. Um, and I'll take you through some examples of that. Just to say, we have... Um, uh, this is from the Irish Film uh, uh, Collection... Uh, Irish Film Archive, sorry. Um, and this is the only image of a, a woman in Ireland I've come across. Um, uh, this is... Um, you can see, you can look it up on the website. This is um, a silent newsreel, so it is actually a film, 1920, um, and it says, shows a side of Irish history that's rarely spoken about. And this is May, May Connolly, um, who was beaten and had her hair shorn for the crime of speaking to black and tans. So again, this kind of charge of women being punished for collaborating was quite elastic, really. It be, could be something as simple as talking or, as rose in the, in the other extreme, um, of actually... Uh, being involved uh, with soldiers uh, in an intimate sense. So, um, so um, May typically, I suppose there's a tendency in the literature as well um, in recent years to suggest this is kind of lenient. But of course, the head shaving was usually conducted um, with other forms of violence as well. Um, also, it was against a woman's will. She was generally held down or dragged, um, often up fields, um, you know, um, where this was inflicted, sometimes blindfolded. Um, so it was quite a terrifying um, thing to happen. Um, it wasn't just a simple where, you know, you had your hair cut. Um, so May was, was uh, beaten. Um, and the method, as they say, was um, used both by IRA and cr Crown forces as a way to control and punish. So I suppose what I find interesting about this is we can't say it was, oh, those bad black and tans or those bad IRA. This was being conducted um, on all sides and it was perpetrated towards women and it suggests that gender adds a whole other layer um, to our understanding um, of this period. Um, so hair shearing, as I said, what is it? Where did it come from? Well, first of all, it is and was a serious assault. And as I said, it was rife in this period in Ireland, as many known examples demonstrate. And I'll take you through those in a moment. I just said I'd mention um, the function of hair. Well, hair is, as we know, it's, it's physiological. It's, it's on our head, right, or on our bodies. Um, but it also has huge significance. In many cultures, I suppose, hair taking is about power. It's about showing your dominance, if you like, um, over uh, the other side, so to speak. So women, in a sense, become, uh, women's bodies become embroiled um, in, in conflict. Um, it's also a very potent symbol of women's um, virginal state, if you like, and, and sexuality. Um, so taking woman's hair was seen as, you know, if you like, taking um, or subverting um, her sexuality. So for instance, for collaborating, um, or sleeping with the enemy, so to speak, um, it was seen as a punishment. So um, the violation was hair was seen as a violation um, of women's honour. And we see here it occurred in many other conflicts. I don't have time to go into this, but the Spanish Civil War, a bit later than the Irish Revolution, um, 
it was widespread and accompanied with other kinds of punishment. Um, so the, the, um, we see here women who had their shaves in Toledo for being relatives of Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. Horrific um, reading around what happened uh, to women in this period. Um, okay, I'm just going to come back to that in a minute. Again, we're also very familiar with this um, in the, after the Second World War, and you were referring to the, the Messine um, um, monuments, etc. And we know that at least 20,000 women had their heads shaved during what became known as the Ugly Carnivals, um, with this kind of, uh, you know, the women again who were considered to have collaborated uh, with the enemy, um, also publicly having their heads shaved with the, the Nazi uh, symbol in this period. Um, the Greek Civil War, I could name lots of others. Again, this was uh, very prevalent. So Ireland, um, of course, wasn't an exception in this regard. Um, women who, I suppose, um, kind of cross the lines of conflict are punished through their bodies and through uh, their sexualities. So what about Ireland? What are some of the examples? I'm going to fly through some of these. I have tons of, of examples. Um, so as I said, arson, kidnapping, fake executions, hijackings, murder, these were all employed. Uh, but men were considered the main targets of executions and kidnappings. Whereas women in Ireland undoubtedly instead became the targets more for head shaving, beatings and rape, with head shavings being the most common punishment in the context of Ireland. Uh, newspaper reports, for instance, suggest uh, that in most instances the attack took place at night, as was the case for Julia Goonan, who was taken at midnight by her uh, attackers and actually hung up by her hair and then shaved. Victim accounts reveal how hair was not only sheared or shorn, it was also pulled, used as a mechanism to drag women, and shaving was likewise, as I said, combined with other kinds of verbal and physical assault and, and, and intimidation. And as I always suggest, it was always humiliating. Um, reports from the Irish Times detail numerous occasions when it was Irish rebels who were the ones meeting out this punishment. Eileen Barker was one such victim, having had her head shaved at gunpoint by members of the IRA for allowing British troops to stay in her hotel in Galway. Unlike later instances, such as those that occurred in France after World War II, head shaving in Ireland was normally performed, if you like, away from the masses, very different to what I showed you there in the context of the Nazi collaborators. So, um, and often away from um, those who could intervene, um, though that was not always the case. New sources are continually documenting head shaving. Um, and as I said, I've relied very much on the witness statements, which you can go home and spend hours looking at um, tonight um, and read these kinds of uh, statements. Which, um, show, which demonstrate this. So again, um, this is a, a cork. I tried to pluck out some of the cork ones, which I've used in some other talks I've given. And um, we see here, this is Leo Buckley, and he's describing, uh, he says, I remember at the time the young girls from Cork going out to Ballincollig to meet the British soldiers. We curbed this by bobbing the hair of persistent offenders. Short hair was completely out of fashion of the period. And the appearance of a girl with bobbed hair clearly denoted her way of life. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. It was a way of kind of singling out a, a woman's sexuality, that she was somehow of dubious um, morality. 
This is the one we were talking about, Martin, earlier in Belclare. And again, I could spend hours reading these out. But this is, again, um, a girl. These are always long-drawn-out stories. It is Ireland, after all. Um, but the girl admitted um, that she wrote a letter. Um, and, and again, these are witness statements of men observing these. Okay, uh, We'll talk about women's accounts in a minute. Uh, she admitted writing the letter. Brigadier Fogarty gave uh, the family a lecture on the gravity of the offence and she said she was being treated leniently and having her hair cut off. There was a scene. The girl was crying and her people were sprinkling holy water and on us. She was a very beautiful, beautiful girl before her hair was sheared and I pitied her, although I knew I should not in the circumstances. So again, this was viewed as a perfectly um, justifiable um, form of punishment. Um, historians of the revolution have tended to either completely omit discussion of this practice or to give it kind of, I suppose, a bit of a mention in a throwaway sentence or remark. But it should be treated um, as part of the main story um, of the conflict. This is in contrast to other countries uh, where these practices occurred and which have um, sparked huge debate about the sexual, gender and power relations exhibited by this form of punishment. We haven't had this debate in Ireland in relation to the Irish Revolution as to what this suggests about the nature of the conflict and how women were punished and the ways in which they were punished, which were different, um, obviously, um, to men. Again, all the t books I've read and read, uh, Bill Kassan, for example, his book on the Irish, uh, sorry, on the Civil War, um, um, didn't provide any evidence or suggestion that women um, suffered any of this. And again, if you consider how gendered civil wars are and how familial they are, um, this is a, a vast omission. So silence and even denial um, uh, are part of, I suppose, recent writing on this period. Um, OK, I'm flying, as you can see. Uh, the second part I want to focus on, it's, um, I suppose, a little bit more difficult. Um, and. Um, often you're dealing with material that is very difficult but again to go back to what I talked about when I look at these stories um, uh, you realise it's not just the revolution that we should be looking at it's actually its impact and the aftermath and in looking at some of these women's stories that I'll take you through now in a moment you realise for instance through many of the recent witness statements uh, and pension applications some only as recent as May there were, um, you see nor nervous breakdowns cropping up. I don't know if any of you who researched this period um, have come across this in, in the period after the revolution. Um, and in some of the women's stories that I've looked at, it is that related to the trauma um, of assault. There's no question about it. There's evidence, there's medical evidence, um, etc. cetera. Um, so I'm just going to take you through some of those stories. Am I doing okay, Jamie? Right. <laughs> All right. So, so again, as I said, so these are difficult questions even today, as I said, in the context of talking about, you know, we've had rape crisis movement centres since the 1970s, and we've had institutional abuses in Ireland, inquiries, etc. So, so why should the revolution be different, I suppose, than those other kinds of very difficult conversations we're having about abuse, etc.? Um, and why should this be exceptional? Okay, um, so... So I want to make a few remarks, first of all. I suppose we have to remember the context of the times. Context is very important. Um, rape and sexual abuse occur in society, but are generally 
um, kept under the radar um, because there's a stigma associated with this, particularly in the period we're looking at. Um, it could, for instance, um, you know, ruin a young woman's marriage chances. She could become stigmatised within her community. And also the chances of a prosecution were tiny, okay? Even if you took a case, um, it was very difficult, it's still very difficult today, isn't it, to prove um, a sexual crime. We saw this, as I said, in recent cases. Um, but in, in those days, a, a woman had to prove she wasn't culpable in her assault, okay? Um, and the kinds of laws we have today you know, didn't exist. Uh, rape wasn't the kind of crime, I suppose, uh, that we consider it today. Again, I'm cutting through this. So, um, so there's been kind of mixed, again, hints that this might have occurred. And I'm just going to quickly quote um, Charles Townsend. And he said, oh, um, in relation, he said, so there's generally an acceptance that there was a lot of hair cutting, okay? Um, but less so in relation to sexual violence. And even the idea that hair cutting could have a sexual intonation that was about controlling women's sexuality or marking them out as what we call sexually deviant um, in the community. Uh, so he said there must also have been sexual violence, though it is much less well attested. There were undoubtedly cases of rape, probably more than the few that were formally reported. Absolutely. Very few, or if um, any really you might suggest were actually reported um, so he says it's, it's a bit cryptic isn't it the way it's written he said which may indeed be surprisingly few certainly by the depressing standards of the contemporary world he says the truth remains obscure um, as the Cork Gaelic leaguer Caroline Townsend said it is very difficult to get facts about such cases in November 1920, Lady Gregory heard from her doctor in Galway that the family of the girls violated by the Black and Tans wished it to be hushed up. And this is what I mean. The, the, the direct impulse was to keep it quiet, keep it under the radar, not to draw attention to it. Okay? So that's why it's such a difficult area, if you like, to research, because it's very um, invisible. Um, and she said, and another case of the same sort, he said, sorry, and another case of the same sort in Clare was also to be kept quiet, okay? So, on the other hand, whilst acknowledging the difficulties of researching this topic, it's also important to research the stories and the cases that we do know exist, and to use those stories as a window to get, I suppose, a better understanding of what happened to women, that very important issue of what happened to women in this period when we're looking at violence um, specifically. Now again, I try to focus on the Cork cases um, for this evening, but again we see hints of this, references to sexual crimes. This is Seamus Fitzgerald from Cork, again I'm not going to go through all his credentials, you can see them there. Um, and he said, uh, I have been asked if I had collected any evidence of rape by Crown forces. I regret to say that I had two such cases. One, an already middle-aged pregnant woman was raped in Blackpool by the Black and Tans. I believe that to be the case of Nora Healy. And I'll bring you through that in a second. And in the same locality, another middle-aged woman successfully resisted a similar attempt. And that's what I meant earlier by harassment and other kinds of violence, you know, that you could be hassled, basically, um, in that way. Um, Lindsay Erner-Byrne, um, a colleague in UCD, 
also has written uh, a paper uh, called The Rape of Mary M. And uh, again, cutting a long story short, Lindsay found a letter by Mary, who she anonymizes, she doesn't want to give away her identity, in um, the records of a church orphanage. And um, so again, I'll just take you through what happened to Mary Emma. This is where the stories really become very powerful, I think. Because Mary, as you can see, was um, a woman in her 40s, early 40s, um, what we would have called then a spinster woman, uh, look, a niece looking after two elderly uh, relatives. Um, her aunt, who was totally blind, uh, and her uncle, and I, their niece, an orphan. Um, and she talks about, uh, in January 1923, I know I'm skipping forward in time, but anyway, we'll ignore that. In January 1923, a party of men, armed to the teeth and calling themselves Republicans, forced their entrance into our house, wherein three people resided, my aunt, my uncle, and myself. Um, the object of their visit was money or lives, when I strove to save my aunt from being dragged from her bed, and they were furious when they did not get money, one brute satisfied his duty passion on me. And again, the language is so different, you know. Um, you know, you might look at that and say, well, what does that mean? But of course, we know she was raped because um, a child transpired, okay? So she says, I was then in a dangerous state of health, and through his conduct, I became pregnant. Oh God, could any pen describe what I have gone through. Now, Lindsay found this letter, my colleague, uh, because she gave the baby up for adoption. No, sorry, not adoption, to an orphanage. Um, and she paid for the child to be brought up in this orphanage. And she wrote this letter to whoever was in charge explaining what had happened. And this is why military archives are great and all these things. But we also need to look at, for example, institutional archives or perhaps medical archives, because she clearly her health, she said she was in a dangerous state of health. This is very common in some of the um, other stories I've looked at. The women are very badly injured um, physically and psychologically afterwards. Okay, I've loads of other examples. I'm going to go quickly, five minutes. Okay, so again, some women were killed. Kate Marr, I'd love to tell you more about this. I don't have time. Again, Kate was um, Dundrum, County Tipperary, um, a single mother at the time, um, not as unusual as we think, um, a, was a servant for a local farmer, ha was out drinking with the soldiers. Um, she was found, um, again, this is the whole file from Q. it's a dreadful read, found um, almost dead the next day with an in inebriated soldier just a few yards away from her, um, she died extensive wounds to the head and extensive vaginal wounds, okay? It's a horrible story. Nora Healy, again, I mentioned in Cork, pregnant woman, um, raped in her own home with her husband in the next room, went to, her, ironically, her husband had been a, a British soldier, went to complain um, the next day, came, saw her perpetrator, and she was t uh, told, never mind, don't say anything now. Uh, very quickly, um, this is very hard to read. Um, this is a log from the Manchester Regiment in Ballincollig, and where they just point out, God, yeah, here it is, it's very hard to see. A young woman was held up by two uniformed men near Ballincollig um, at 2100 hours and rapes, raped. As she had been um, something, 
and um, this is thought to be the work of the rebels. Um, I think what it says is as she'd had her head shaved. Um, this is now again, that's a diary entry recording. It just happens to record something that happened. This one, um, and I'm just getting near the end, Jamie, I'm conscious, is um, very sad. Um, and this, I found this in the new records that were released in May. Um, Margaret Doherty. And again, you know, you read these stories. M Margaret was the youngest of nine from Foxford County Mayo. And I suppose I'm not giving anything away because these are public archives. The letters are there, etc. Some of the stories I don't talk about. They're too difficult. And the families, you know, may not want the story told. This one is public. Um, so this is a letter from her mother. Margaret was effectively dragged in 1923 out of her house um, and um, stripped naked and uh, gang raped by three men and, uh, of the Free State Army. And Margaret before that had been very active in Cumann Amon. She was the youngest of nine and the only daughter. She'd lost three brothers in the First World War. It's, it's just the complexity of where we're coming from. She had been very active in Cumann Amon in the revolution herself. Very typical. These women were very brave. They were, you know, they were engaged in all kinds of activities. Anyway, this is a um, pension application from her mother who was reliant on her because she was an invalid herself. So lives become... Oh, more than one life becomes affected. Margaret never recovered. Um, this was 1923. She died in 1928 in Castlebar um, in the home, in the asylum. She never recovered. Um, it seems from reading the transcript that um, I think she died of anorexia. Yeah, she, she seemed to have starved herself. Or there's, there's reference to this. But again, I could take you through that whole story it's a horrendous uh, story, and the trauma, I suppose, is carried through. Now, I've looked a good bit at this case. There was a court-martial, and I don't have time tonight to talk about the other side, the perpetrators, too much. Um, and it was known in the community, it was known, um, uh, that this happened. And it must still be known uh, to this day. In fact, I know it is, um, but I'm not going to say too much about it. Now, um, just to complicate things. There is another case, I don't have time um, to talk about it, I have the records here, um, June 1922, and I suppose what I want to do is show that it wasn't just one side who was doing this, okay? It's very important to see that this was coming from all sides. So I mentioned the Free State, I mentioned the Black and Tans, didn't I? Have I mentioned them all? Um, this one is um, a, a case in um, um, Mrs. Eileen Biggs' um, was a Protestant woman, actually, in this case. And uh, she and her husband lived in Drummondier, um, County Tipperary. And it's known who her per perpetrator was. Often I don't name the perpetrators because, you know, I don't get in trouble. But, but this one is very well known. It's documented in the literature. Um, so Podrugues has mentioned it. I think Gemma Clark has mentioned it um, as well. And Mrs Biggs and her husband were raided, very similar to the story of Margaret Doherty a minute ago um, and she was locked up and whatever they ran riot there were eight men <coughs> involved and the transcript which is in queue only became available in 1980 uh, suggested she was raped 13 times um, it's a horrendous case absolutely um, left for dead um, Martin Hogan was the leader of that gang from the local um, IRA anti-treaty captain 
Martin Hogan. Um, and uh, anyway, clearly, and again, the community always responds, of course, of course it does. And they were ran out of the place, he and four others. It, three others were arrested. And um, very typically, as in the Kate Marr case I mentioned a minute ago, in Dundrum, where the soldiers in um, the regiment, you know, they were questioned, whatever. But generally, nobody is ever charged, you know, and at this time. You know, they might be questioned a bit or whatever, but, you know, there's no punishment. There's no justice, I suppose, um, is what we might say. So the um, Eileen Biggs, again, never recovered. She and her husband ended up in England. They both had nervous breakdowns. And as I said, nervous breakdowns crops up uh, quite a bit in the narratives. I talked about Margaret, these people, and I have other cases as well. But I suppose just to finish off, I suppose, of where we are at... And as I said this evening, I've just taken you through some of the stories um, of what happened to women in this period. Some of them are very difficult um, cases. That um, Eileen Biggs case, that again crops up in the Grants Commission's um, applications for compensation. So you're finding them in different sources. Um, but I suppose what is ironic about commemoration, um, Alan, isn't it, um, is that Martin Hogan, he was, as you can see here, he was... Um, he was shot, basically, quite soon after, in April 1923. Uh, his body was found at Grace Park Road. And I suppose this case was reported in the newspapers, etc. It was known, the Biggs case. Some of them actually were so horrific. And this is why, you know, I'm not... I'm focusing on the more transgressive cases tonight because they're the ones which made the press. You know, they were reported. They were so horrendous. You know, they were noticed. There are probably many stories that perhaps we don't know anything about. Um, but... Uh, he's commemorated as a hero, okay, uh, in two places. Um, one in um, Mila, re-erected in 2003, and the other in Grace Park Road, um, where he was shot. So, difficult questions demand difficult histories, and also forces to ask difficult questions um, during... Um, periods of revolution. Um, in a striking metaphor in 1975, Ardner stated, um, women have been described as a muted group in history, only able in many times and places to express their ideas through the dominant language of men. And I would ask, is this still the case? Are women still a muted group in Irish history, particularly when we look at what we might call the silencing or suppression of gender-based violence in this period and I'll leave you with this I'll just leave it up I won't um, I didn't have time to go into it but just again when you look at the stories and I suppose what I try and do is think about imagine if tonight was whatever 1922 whatever date how, how you know how are people living their lives what were they doing and it was women who were often if you like at the front line you know they were keeping they were in the domestic space the domestic space becomes, I suppose, the space, you know, where, you know, the community are, um, there it is. Um, so this is just a final one. I'm not going to read it out, don't worry. Uh, but just, this is a, um, Mary Walsh from Kalanton, my pronunciation's probably wrong, in Bandon County, Cork. And uh, this is her statement. And you just, you read through it and you think, my God, what these people uh, went through. You know, the mothers dragged out. And, and this is the original. She's followed up the stairs. It doesn't say she's assaulted, but 
you know, she was followed up the stairs. You don't, you just don't know what happened. So I leave it at that. Thank you very much. So that's it, everybody. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening again. You can read more about it in my article in the West Cork People in this month's edition.